So, in the 17th century, George Wishart was condemned to death. However, George Wishart, who was, I guess, the Bishop of Edinburgh, I hadn't really heard of him before, he knew of a custom that saved his life. When a person was condemned to death, they had one psalm that they could request to be read before they were put to death. Had George Wishart selected Psalm 117, he would have died. It is two verses, five lines. However, George Wishart smartly, perhaps with some divine guidance, maybe just smartly, picked Psalm 119. 176 verses. The pardon that he was banking on walked through the door about two-thirds of the way through, and he saved his neck that day. Those 176 verses is our text for today. That's why I had Jordan come up and read a fraction of it for you, so that you could get the flavor of what Psalm 119 is like, so you could begin to understand what this psalmist was up to in writing this incredible testament to the Word of God, to the law of God. Psalm 119 is famous not only for its length, but for its form. If you've ever heard of an acrostic before, this is a major acrostic. An acrostic is something where the first letter of a word, or in this case, of the Hebrew alphabet, is used to create a poem. The most famous example of this is probably what you wrote to your fourth grade sweetheart for Valentine's Day. Vanessa, V, very cool. A, awesome. N, nice. E, extra friendly. S, sweet. S, super sweet. A, available? (laughs) That's an acrostic. However, in this case, it is a beautiful picture of Hebrew poetry. Um, It's a form that we often, or actually probably would always miss, because it doesn't translate. The first letters of our words in English aren't the first letters of the Hebrew words. So um, I'll show you a slide of what the Hebrew looks like. This is actually really cool. In Psalm 119, you can see every line is going to repeat for eight at a time. There's 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet, so you do eight times of 22, and each of those eight verses starts with the same letters. You can see it goes from right to left instead of left to right, but the first letter, Aleph, um, is going to be repeated for the first eight verses, and then Beth, the second one, and on and on through each verse. And so the psalmist has taken on some very different constraints than most of the psalms that we've been looking at. And here, he's chosen not only to use this literary form to express his love for the Word of God, but he's also made it very clear that that's what he's writing about. He's writing about his love for God. And we have this form not just because it's cool to write in this unique way, but also because it provides the opportunity to use what we should be doing with the Word of God for ourselves, of storing it up, the psalmist says, of memorizing it. This was a mnemonic device. This is how people would commit the entire 176 verses to their memory. So quiz, who's got it? Who wants to do it? (laughs) Probably none of us, right? Um, It also conveys a sense of orderliness and a sense of completeness. And so this beautiful monument right at the center of the Bible, Psalm 119, is what we're going to be engaging with today as a part of this message, which is a part of our series on our liturgy, on our gathering um, and on how we worship, both gathered and scattered. We've been doing the different portions of the liturgy over the last few weeks because as elders, we decided that it was really important that we do things intentionally. So we sat down and wrote, why do we do the different parts of our service? And we said it would be a really great way to communicate to the body how to really leverage their time with us on Sunday morning to come closer to God by digging into each of those elements. 
So we talked about petition with Daniel. Um, we talked about um, confession with Jared. We've talked about worship with Brad. I think Tripp did one as well on assurance. Um, and these are the different aspects of the worship service that we actually do every Sunday we get together when we gather. Um, and as you saw in the title of the, the series, it's not just worshiping when we're together. It's also when we're scattered. So we're actually imprinting on ourselves how we can interact with the God of the universe throughout the week by the time that we spend together. And so we talk about um, this liturgy, which is how we, we do this practically. Now, in honor of Psalm 119, I want to structure our time together as an acrostic, um, a much shorter acrostic. Our acrostic today is going to be law, L-A-W, because that is what Psalm 119 is all about, the law of God. Um, and so as we do that, we're going to go through three different areas to kind of help you track along. We're going to talk about our loves, we're going to talk about our attitudes, and we're going to talk about words. Loves, attitudes, and words. So the psalmist, when he talks about loves, is pretty clear what he loves. He loves the word of God. But every time I go up to speak, I always want to share this quote. Because David Foster Wallace, he's a a literary fiction author. Um, He passed away, took his own life, unfortunately, uh, a few years ago now. But he's one of my favorite novelists. And in my view, he's actually one of the, the greatest chroniclers of the human experience. If you read this guy, you're like, man, this guy really understands people in a way that a lot of us don't a way that a lot of Christians don't. And he has this this great speech that he gave when he gave the commencement speech in 2005 to Kenyon College, where he really gets at this notion of our loves. Here's what he says. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some type of God or spiritual type to worship, be it JC, Jesus, or Allah, Yahweh, or the Wiccan Mother Goddess, or the Four Noble Truths, or some infrangible set of ethical principles, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure, and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you and bury you, as we means. On one level, we know this stuff already. It's been codified as myths, proverbs, cliches, bromides, epigrams, parables, the skeleton of every great story. The trick is keeping the truth up front in daily consciousness. Worship power, you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out, and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful, it's questionable, it is that they are unconscious. They are the default settings. This is the reality that David Foster Wallace was able to pin down about the world around us. We're constantly worshiping. We constantly have a love set out before us that we are gearing our lives towards. It's what matters to us. It's what drives us and directs us. Now, he misses the mark in saying any one of these spiritual things could be better than these other things because the psalmist actually gets it right here. The psalmist lays out a very clear and persuasive and exhaustive, or actually an inexhaustible case, that the word of God, the law of God, the commandments of God, the promises of God, those are the loves that we should set before ourselves. That is where true life resides. 
And the psalmist is savvy to this notion that using anything else will destroy you. I'm actually going to be using a lot of these different verses, not just the ones that Jordan's read for us, um, through Psalm 119. So if you have a Bible, it'll be kind of fun to open it because we're not putting them all on the screen because they're like, you know, zingers one line at a time. So you can kind of catch up with me as I say them if you have it. You've got to have quick fingers if you're doing it on the phone. So verse 133, the psalmist gets this idea that David Foster Wallace presented. He says, Keep steady my steps according to your promise and let no iniquity get dominion over me. Let no iniquity get dominion over me. Those are those other lesser loves that David Foster Wallace is talking about. The psalmist says, if you don't put the word of God in front of you, then something else will take over. It will take over your affections. It will take over your loves. In verse 37, the same type of notion comes up. He says, turn my eyes from looking at worthless things and give me life in your ways. That word in Hebrew is that of idol. So if you're not worshiping God, his word, his laws, you're worshiping an idol. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. That's what those things are, especially in relation to the word of God. Now, as I mentioned, the psalmist has a pretty clear thesis, um, which is essentially that the loving of God's word is the highest good for your life. The loving of God's word is the highest good for your life. Um, he brings up this idea in just these effusive phrases that he uses. Verse 72 says, The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. It's better than money. Verse 103 says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth, sweeter than food, sweeter than sensations and pleasure. Verse 131, I open my mouth and pant because I long for your commandments. That's longing, that's panting, that's something deeper than just an intellectual assent to the word of God. In 127, therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. The psalmist is so clear about what he values, the word of God. Now this is the longest psalm and the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's 176 verses, and at least 171 of those verses include a Hebrew word for some sort of synonym for law, word, God, or sorry, not God, promise, um, and each, actually, each one of those was included in um, the verses for the Hebrew letter of Him, um, which Jordan read for us. You've got the word law, and that occurs 25 times. The word word, 24 times. Rulings or ordinances, 23 times. Testimonies, 23 times. Commandments, 22 times. Decrees or statutes, 21 times. Precepts or charges, 21 times. And there's actually some other ones that come up as well. Sayings and promise, 19 times and some that scholars kind of quibble over whether those count or not towards every single verse in the psalm, including the word of God. But it's clear what this poet, what this psalmist is pushing towards here, is that the word of God is what is to be praised most highly, it's what to be encountered, it's what we are to seek. And each one of those words captures a different facet of the word of God. You've got the word law, which we often will think of like our laws, like something to do or what... Um, must be done. You've got commandments and precepts, statutes. Those sound like things God has directed us to be done. But don't be tricked by this because in total, using all those words and even in the word law itself, we're talking about scripture. We're talking about the word of God. Jesus himself references a psalm as the law in the New Testament. This is the way that Jesus thought about scripture was that even if it's a psalm, a piece of poetry, if you refer to it as law, because the power of the word of God has authority over life. Whether it's one of the Ten Commandments, whether it's a psalm, whether it's a piece of the narrative 
They all have power and authority over our lives. That's the way Jesus viewed it, and Jesus was steeped in the scripture. He lived through it constantly on his mind. And as you, if you spend the time, which I hope you will in the next week, of going through all 176, 176 verses, some themes are going to jump out at you. Some things that the psalmist returns to again and again. He characterizes the word of God as awesome, as righteous, dependable, unshakable, inexhaustible. He lifts it up and says that these are, has these amazing qualities. And he's also somewhat pragmatic. He also highlights the benefits of this love for the word of God. One that comes up most often is that it gives him life. He constantly is returning to this refrain, your law gives me life. It gives me life. It harkens back to that moment in creation where the word of God actually created the world. He's the creator and he's the ongoing sustainer. And so this psalmist is living knowing that the creator of the universe sustains him moment by moment. And the encouragement and the truth does the same. It is his life. One of the most famous verses in Psalm 119 is um, one you'll think of in 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. It gives us light on how to move forward. It guides our ways. Other things that are benefits to us, it gives us knowledge, understanding, wisdom, stability, joy. The psalmist lays out a strong case for why God has given us his word and why it should be the most highly valued thing. And not only has he laid out the benefits, he's also given us some tips on how to make this so important in our lives, how to lift it up as he has. Uh, verse 11, which Jordan read, says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I, may, that I may not sin against you. I have stored up your word in my heart. Now, this could mean no less than regular interaction with the word of God. It means regularly encountering God, reading his word, coming to it, listening to it. We're doing that right now. We do that on Sundays when we present the word to you through the sermon. We do it with the scripture readings that we do. But the hope and the practice that we're talking about in this series of liturgy is that this practice spills over into our lives. Now, the psalmist probably meant a lot more. I am not a person that's had a tremendous amount of success with memorizing scripture, but I think that's the type of thing the psalmist is getting at here. He's saying, look, I laid out this pneumatic uh, structure for you so you can memorize all these verses, so you can store them in your heart so that when you need them, they're available. Just as Christ, when he was about to be taken to jail, says this is so the scriptures will be fulfilled. He was constantly interacting with them in his heart because he had stored them there. Verse 164 says, seven times a day I praise you for your righteous rules. This is where the Benedictine monks uh, take it very literally and they have the seven orders during the day because they're regularly, not just once in the morning or once on Sunday, they're constantly coming back to God in prayer, and in lifting up his words back to God. And verse 130 says, The unfolding of your word gives life. It imparts the understanding to the simple. The unfolding of the word. So it's not just reading it and glancing over it. It's delving in deep. It's interacting. It's what we do during sermons. We're unfolding the word for all of you. And it's what we hope you'll be trained in doing, not only here with your missional communities, especially in DNA. As you meet with others, you're unfolding the word. You're getting to its riches you're seeing the light within. Tim Keller, a pastor in New York, um, and one of my favorite authors, gives an example of unfolding the word. When he was, I think, in seminary, this um, professor presented the class with a task. It was to read a verse and mark about how you become a, fishers of, you become a fisher of men. Um, and what the professor said is, okay, take this one verse 
and come back with 50 insights that you have from it. And you have to be out for a half hour. You can't come back sooner. And the temptation is going to be that after five minutes, you think you've got it all. And, the, and I probably should have done this exercise myself before coming before you, but what his uh, result was, was essentially that they went out, and after five minutes, the teacher was right. It felt like, I read it all, I've got it all, I've figured this thing out, and then kept pressing on, and deeper and deeper, and more insights came, and more insights came. And then finally, when the class all came back together, they wrote their insights on the board for each other, and the teacher asked, how many of you discovered that most important insight, because they just wrote the most important one or the one that struck them the most, came in those first five minutes? And no one raised their hand. Ten minutes, no one raised their hand. Finally, after 15 minutes, people started raising their hand because that scripture had to be unfolded, it had to be delved into, and that's where the light emerged from. And so I urge you not all, to not only interact regularly with God's word, but deeply, meaningfully. Um, in the last series we did on Proverbs, Brad actually talked about God's word as well, and I encourage you to go back and listen to that because he gives a great primer and understanding uh, some of the challenges and some of the resources and the ways that we can interact with God's word. And I was really happy that Brad gave an uh, endorsement to the Audible Bible because I love audiobooks, and so I'm like, I should probably do that with the Bible as well. And now it's helped me a lot in this last year, spend a lot more time in Scripture. Um, but as you go through Psalm 119, you see that it's not a simplistic formula. It's a life's work of interacting with the Word of God. And I told you this first section of our time together is about loves, and this brings to mind um, Augustine, St. Augustine. He had this notion about disordered loves, and that's really what we're talking about when we get together in a worship service together. I'll, I'll kind of share with you the notion from Augustine. It's that a person um, who has rightly ordered his love um, means that he won't love what is wrong to love or fail to love what should be loved or love too much what should be loved less or love too little, what should be love more. So practically, um, that's like, there's nothing wrong with loving your work, but if you love it more than your family, then your loves are probably out of order because your family's going to suffer. Um, or if you love making money more than you love justice, then you'll end up exploiting your employees. And then again, your, your loves are disordered. And so the psalmist is pretty clear that our loves are to be ordered with a love for the word of God in its primacy. Uh, that that's something that should be at the top of our ordered loves. Um, there's an author named James K.A. Smith that wrote this really great book called You Are What You Love. And he has a couple quotes that I think help us not only to dig into our teaching today on the sermon, but into the whole idea of liturgy. Um, he says, Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It is where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. Now, that whole book is actually a reflection on Augustine's disordered loves. And so when we come together on Sunday, we're kind of saying, hey, during the week, we probably got our loves a little bit off. Our habits and our lives, the things that we spend all day doing, whether that's getting up and checking social media or doing your ritual and going to the coffee shop or whatever it is you do during the day, those habits start imprinting themselves on us and they change what we love. And so we do things intentionally to retrain our habits, to retrain our hearts, to properly order our loves. And we're retraining our hearts during the sermon towards loving the word of God. And we hope that that's a daily practice for you as well. 
Elsewhere, Smith goes on, he says, God meets us where we are as creatures of habit shaped by practices and invites us into a community of practice that is the very body of his son. Liturgy is the way we learn to put on Christ. That's the work we're doing every week. That's why it matters to gather together. We're resetting. We're coming together and encouraging one another to come back to what we're called to. This is formative for us. It changes us. And so I hope that we're experiencing that this morning and each time we gather. Um, Hopefully this also puts a different gloss or different spin on that idea of a spiritual discipline or of these spiritual habits, that they're not done because they're sort of, uh, I'm required to by God. They're done so that our our heart would be rightly oriented to God. Um, We're called to enter into this same work. Now, I told you the second part of our talk was going to be about attitudes. This is going to be about our attitudes, but also the attitudes of our culture. Because the message that the psalmist in 119 is putting forward is in great tension with what our society is telling us. You've probably met somebody who gave you this explanation of their Christian experience. When I was young, I believed in Christianity. Then as I grew and I learned, I discovered that there are parts of it that were regressive, that were even offensive. And so I don't believe in those parts anymore, but I still believe in certain parts. We can hear this in the idea for truth in our culture. It's no longer an objective outside of us perspective on what is true in the world, but it's that subjective experience. What's true for you? What rings true for you? And that's what defines what is true in our lives. It's very tempting to approach the scriptures in this way, but it's quite clear from reading Psalm 119 that this is not what the psalmist is doing, and it's not what he's calling us into doing as well. He's actually saying that there is an outside truth. There is something beyond ourselves that I'm submitting to even when it's not what I'm wanting, even when it's not what I'm looking for. Um, And the other aspect of this is that we have a temptation when we say that about Scripture to think that we now are at that pinnacle cultural moment where we understand because of our enlightenment more than any generation before us. And no doubt that's what the people who are reading the Bible back in 1937 said, um, during World War II or during 1861, during the Civil War. And the fact of the matter is, there is not a likelihood, but a certainty that your grandchildren are going to be embarrassed by you. They're going to look back to what you thought today and you thought you were so right about, and they're going to realize, you know what? They were a slave to their cultural moment. Sorry, Granddad, I know you were cool, but that wasn't cool. You know? He's going to let me off the hook, I hope, because of the cultural moment I was in for the bad decisions I made about what's true. But it's inescapable. Every generation over time has experienced this. And that's what's so remarkable about this scripture that the psalmist calls us to. It's not the representation of not even one culture, but any of those cultures. The belief of the psalmist and of Christians is that the word of God is given by the creator of the universe who is sovereign and who is capable of communicating to us through written word. The God of the universe sought to communicate with us through his word. That's why we go to it. And that empowers us to critique our culture. That empowers us to have a truth beyond ourselves. That empowers us to have a love that's not simply creating a God in our own image. Because that's the risk. When you say, I'm not willing to deal with the scripture here because it's regressive, you think, or because it's just not lining up, You're essentially reforming God into your own image instead of allowing him to form you. 
That's the risk. So the psalmist is calling us into a greater picture for what God's word is, uh, something beyond ourselves to orient our lives around. But as you read this, you start to feel the weight of it. Intellectually, I can assent to this idea um, of scripture being so great. But as you read it, it's relentless. It starts to feel inauthentic as you read it. I love your word so much. I love your commandments, your precepts. And as you say it, you start to realize what your morning was like, how you yelled at your kid, how you swerved at some guy on the traffic. Whatever it is that day, you start to realize that this is not true of you, even as you're reading it. You want to say, like honey, you pant for you. You like it sweeter than honey. You pant for his word. It's greater than gold. That you love it, but it doesn't match the reality. And eventually, even if you're having some success in this, um, you sort of peter off. Let's say. Uh, as for many of us, you have that New Year's resolution. I'm going to read the Bible in a year. And then by January 16th, it's sitting there unused right next to your LA fitness membership, your donation to your gym. And that's our experience when we try to take this on. And that's not even counting these opportunities where we encounter adversity, where we're going along fine, we're loving God's word, and some uh, a speed bump comes along, where we run into um, a loss, Something unexpected, a job loss, housing instability. And now, rather than turning to God's word, we're turning to food. We're turning to all those things that David Foster Wallace listed. And so there's a temptation to run to Jesus. There's a simplistic formula of scripture where someone might say, well, the Old Testament was thankfully put away when the New Testament came, because now God is a God of love, and Jesus is love, and so now he's forgiven me, and so none of that Old Testament stuff matters. And that only counts until you read Jesus in his own terms. Um, Because that simplistic view of Scripture is not what the Bible teaches. If you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus actually ratchets up the pressure. When Jesus talks about the law of God, he says, you know, you've heard it said that adultery shall not be done, but I'll tell you what, when you look lustfully upon that woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Murder is not allowed, but I'll tell you what, when you thought anger in your head towards that person, you've already murdered him. And so Jesus, rather than releasing the pressure on us that you might feel from Psalm 119 and the weight of it, he actually ratchets it up. And in that same sermon, um, at the beginning of Matthew 5, verses 17 and 19, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. It's a jot or a tittle in the King James. That's the shortest letter in the Hebrew alphabet, or even a a portion of it, like sort of a crossing the T or dotting the I. Jesus is not at all dismissing the law. He's not come to abolish it. He's not giving us a pass. Thankfully, the psalmist leaves a clue for us, a crumb, right at the end of those 176 verses that gives us insight into how this is to properly function in our lives. He says, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. We're talking about the words given to us in this third part of our talk. 
We're talking about those words of life. And here, this word in verse 1, same sex, I have gone astray like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. Ultimately, even though the psalmist has persisted for 175 verses about his achieving God's law, following it, um, he rests on not his own work. He rests on his own need. Despite everything, he finds himself lost like a sheep. One that needs to be sought by the shepherd. And that's why when Christ, when he says, I've not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, we have hope. Because in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who does not own the sheep sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them up and scatters them. He flees because he's a hired hand. He cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my own know me just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. In this beautiful foreshadowing, we know that we are a lost sheep that needs a shepherd to seek us, to come after us. Even as we seek to engage with the word of God, at the final analysis, we need to be sought. And that's precisely what the plan of God from the beginning of time was. As he planned this scripture, he also knew that he would bring a good shepherd for us to seek us. Now, I said the, the third portion of our talk here would be words, and we've been talking about words this whole time. We have all those synonyms for words, but there was another word. We have the word that God gave to us so that we could have a relationship with him in the word of God, in scripture. But in John 1, he tells us, he gives us another word. The word made fresh, flesh. The word logos in Greek. John 1 says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things are made through him. And without him was not anything that was made. In him was life, and the life was a light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome us. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. How does he seek us? He doesn't only give us the word, which, if we took as a burden upon ourselves, would crush us. The waveness of the statutes would destroy us. We know from our life experience that we can't follow through on those things, but he gave us the word made flesh, which did fulfill. Jesus lived a perfect life, fulfilling each of these commandments and statutes and law. That was his plan from the start, that the word would not only be given in written form, but in the flesh. That is how God was going to seek us. And Christ, when he came, not only was he involved in the creation of the world, John tells us, but he also gives us a way to view the entire scripture. And so I want to use kind of the remainder of our time to dig into how Christ interacts with Psalm 119 in all of scripture. There's this great moment in um, the book of Luke, Luke 24. Um, it's the narrative of the road to Emmaus. This is after Jesus has died, he's been resurrected, and his disciples are walking along and they're confused and they're sort of lost. They think all is lost and Jesus comes along magically. They don't recognize him and he's able to 
enter into the scriptures with them. He says in verses 26 to 27, And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Jesus, who loved the word of God, is giving us a clue on how we're to interact with something like Psalm 119 and all of scripture. He sat down with his disciples and said, I am the key to understanding these things. So when you encounter scripture, this is a question you need to be asking yourself. How does this point to him? How does he resolve this? That's why we know that when we need to be sought by a shepherd, that we know who that shepherd is. Jesus. In John 5, he gets at the same notion. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So if you went to Psalm 119 without this view of Christ, you would not come away with the life that's promised. The very life that is promised by the psalmist in saying, you give me life, Christ is saying that life comes from me. You need to understand the whole picture of God's story to be able to understand how Psalm 119 is fulfilled. And this is exactly what Jesus does throughout his ministry. He's constantly interacting with the prophets, with the Psalms, with the Torah, the different parts of the Old Testament, and presenting it in terms of how it applies to him. And this is what we do on our Sunday morning gathering time. This is where I want to talk practically about what the sermon time is. We want to walk with you down that road to Emmaus. Something that is not unfolded before you, we want to present to you so that you can see how it does point to him. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, every time you expound a Bible text, you're not finished unless you demonstrate how it shows that we cannot save ourselves and that only Jesus can. Now, if you read Psalm 119, this is not something that we can be flippant about either because we seek as elders here to present what we would call expository preaching. That's often uh, balanced or contrasted with topical preaching. But at the end of the day, what we want to do is present a piece of scripture before you and let it tell you its own truth. Let it guide what the author was intending to say. We want to come before you and say, this is what the scripture means. So we're not taking giant leaps, which is why Keller says later, we have a balance to strike, not to preach Christ without preaching to the text and not to preach the text without preaching Christ. Okay? So this is a tension and a balance that's worked out from the pulpit. It's worked out in our DNAs where we're asking these questions like, whoa, did you make too big of a leap there? Is Ryan going too far with the good shepherd thing? Is that just too far afield? These are the questions we're constantly asking ourselves and the work that we're doing as we unfold these scriptures. Now, as we stand before you, um, we, we know that we're not enough. Um, Keller, and he has this great book on preaching. He also uh, puts it this way, and actually Brad's dad is here, um, taught a bunch of us. I wasn't there, but I got to listen to the audio on, uh, or trained a few of us on how to preach. And he presented a similar notion, which is um, there's a, while the difference between a bad sermon and a good sermon is mainly the responsibility of the preacher, the difference between good preaching and great preaching lies mainly in the work of the Holy Spirit. We should do the work it takes to make our communication good and leave it up to God, how and how often he makes it great for the listener. So there's a piece of humility there as well. I can prepare and come up with 
cool quotes and jokes and all those things, which really can be distracting as much as helpful sometimes. But at the end of the day, if you're going to be transformed, it's not going to be me who does it. It's going to be the Word of God through the operation of the Holy Spirit in your life. And when we're successful in preaching and teaching, and when you're successful in encountering the Word of God on your own, you don't come away with, well, that was a good message. Ryan's a good speaker. You come away with worship on the spot. You come away with with being confronted by the beauty, by the truth, by the holiness of God, and coming away changed, of being transformed. And that is the power of the Word of God in our lives. That's why my my actual favorite verse, a, a big turning point in my own experience with God, came from the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. He says, And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ Jesus and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, I remember so clearly my my buddy Frank, this is when I was in college, we had kind of like a DNA, an accountability group, and he was studying abroad, and we got on the phone, and I just had this experience with this idea that um, the cross of Christ was the crux of everything. Before that, I had kind of been jumbled, and I was a Christian, but I didn't really get this. And I called him, I was like, Frank, everything comes back to the cross. This is amazing. He's like, that's great, Wolfie. Uh, you know, now we can move on to other things. I'm like, no, this is everything. This is A to Z. This is the beginning and the end. And that's what we, we do when we follow Christ, is we don't just try to come up with something to train or equip or give information or even to be attractional to people from the outside. We seek to present the cross of Christ through all of Scripture to you. Okay? Martin Luther, to give you one final example, and this comes as much from my father-in-law. He, he guided me to us. He's a seminary professor uh, in the Lutheran tradition, and so he brought this idea from Luther in this, this quote, which uh, kind of like, spurs me on when I'm preparing for one of these. Um, Luther puts it this way, Our preaching does not stop with the law. That would lead to wounding without binding up, striking down and not healing, killing and not making alive, driving down to hell and not bringing back up, humbling and not exalting. Therefore, we must also preach grace and the promise of forgiveness. This is the means by which faith is awakened and properly taught. Without this word of grace, the law, contrition, penitence, and everything else are done and taught in vain. That's from Martin Luther. So as we come before you, the hope is that you would be convicted, that you would die a certain death, you would feel the weight, you'd feel the separation, and that you would then be resurrected by the hope of the gospel. That's the experience we hope you have every worship service, not only in the sermon, but that's why we structured the different components as we have. We hope that you get to see the whole range of God's story that way how he was good, and how we fell away. And how he had a plan. Even though we've tried all these things that didn't work, he had a plan to bring us back to him. And now, because he has made a way, we're able to, with the psalmist, say, God, I love your word. I love you. We're able to be changed because of that. Now, the psalmist captures this somewhat nuanced idea, but the the commentators, Derek Kidner, they see this as well, that that there's this weird paradox within the Word of God. It feels on its face like a constraint. Our culture tells us freedom is a lack of 
restrictions. It's autonomy. That's what freedom is. So if you're being restricted, you're not free. But the psalmist puts it kind of uh, interestingly in verse 96 of 119. It says, I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And I shall walk in a wide place, for I have sought your precepts in uh, verse 45. This, this Hebrew idea of a broad place. And to be honest, without a commentary, I just skimmed right over that, the times I've read Psalm 119 in the past. But it's actually a key to the way that the law operates in our hearts, especially and particularly in light of the full revelation of God in Christ. The New Living Translation, which might not be where you're going for this like intense textual study, but sometimes they get the ideas, puts it this way. In verse 45, the New Living Translation says, I will walk in freedom, for I have devoted myself to your commandments. The psalmist in 119 is presenting this love letter to the word of God, not because he's required to, but because it gives him freedom and life and love and all the best things. God has designed us in a particular way, and the psalmist is saying, when I follow your laws, I'm living rightly. My loves are rightly ordered. I'll end with Augustine. He says this, Eternal God, who are the light of the minds that know you, the joy of the hearts that love you, and the strength of the wills that serve you, grant us so to know you that we may truly love you, and so to love you that we may fully serve you, whom to serve is perfect freedom in Jesus Christ our Lord. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you so much for the inexhaustible treasury of Psalm 119. I pray that this week you would blow us away as we sit before it, as we interact with you, as we think about the beauty and the majesty of your word and how the word became flesh and came to love us. I pray that you would use our time when we gather each week to form us in this way, to reorient our habits and our loves, and that that would spill over into our whole lives and this community would be transformed by you and your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.